The podcast you are about to hear tells the story of a Katsi man named Slumuk. Members of the Katsi First Nation have been instrumental in us telling the story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Katsi people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A legend says, the ghost of a man who died on the gallows in New Westminster guards Lost Creek Mine, a fabulous El Dorado that lured two white men to mysterious deaths. 79-year-old Chief August Jack Cazzolano is the only living person who knows the whole story. Lost Creek Mine is, quote, death to white men, end quote. He says the ghost that haunts the mine is old Slumuk, who found treasure deep in the Pit Lake Mountains, about 45 miles north of Vancouver. He was in his 80s when he was hanged on January 16, 1891, for murdering a half-breed. White men claim the grizzled Indian died with his secret. White men who have plotted into the treacherous Pit Lake Mountains, bent on fighting the Golden Creek, had no knowledge of guiding landmarks. The Indians say Old Slumok's mine is, quote, near a large tent-shaped rock with three peaks in the distance, end quote. The Indian story, as told by the old chief, was an exciting mixture of superstition, legend, and fact. Old Slumok used to kill deer for a butcher, and he found golden shotgun slugs in the meat. Nobody asked where he got his gold, but all knew he took trips into the mountains and came back with fresh supplies. They thought the mine was probably near the good hunting grounds and that old Slumok had stumbled onto it. Old Slumok was known as a killer of men. The Indian legend says he killed at least eight Indian women after forcing them into the mountains to pack out his gold. Early newspapers also said Slumok killed 10 men before the arrival of the white man on the BC scene. New Westminster court records show Old Slumok actually died for the murder of a half-breed, Louis B., near the Pitt River on September 8, 1890. Old Slumok zealously guarded his mine. When he thought prospectors were seeking his gold, he devised means of frightening them off. The Indian story says the trial judge went to the Indian and told him that instead of hanging, he would likely get life sentence if he told white men where his gold was hidden. Old Slumok's reply highlights the legend. Nika memlus, mine memlus. When I die, the mine dies. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse, Slumok's Gold. Episode 11, Pulp Fiction. I'm your guide along with the rest of the team for the Adventure TV docuseries Dead Man's Curse, which includes a host of experts and members of the Katsi and Stolo First Nations. If this is your first time joining me, I recommend going back to the beginning as we investigate the curse and give Slumok a voice from beyond the veil. A version of the story you heard at the beginning of this episode was published on December 21st, 1951 in The Province. Written by Bruce Larson, the article titled Legend of Fabulous Lost Creek Mine, Bared for the First Time by Indian Chief, is where you'll find the first mention of the words 
Nika Memlus Mine Memlus. It took 60 full years from 1891 to 1951 for the province newspaper, one of Vancouver's major dailies that is still in existence, to connect Slumok's name to a curse. During that time, prospectors headed into the Pitt Lake region in search of Slumok's stash and came back empty-handed, or didn't come back at all. For the first decade, Slumok wasn't even connected to gold in the press, but then an article was published in the province newspaper in 1901 about an Australian prospector, Clifford Wellington. Quote, an old Indian legend about a source of hidden treasure with a large number of nuggets hidden by an unnamed indigenous fugitive from justice and that this fugitive's nephew, who had an accident while going after the treasure, gave directions to an old miner, also unnamed, end quote. If the fugitive was Slumok and the nephew, Peter Pierre, then who was the old miner? Was it Walter Jackson? According to the article in the province, Wellington was attempting to get his boat up a small rapid at the head of Pitt Lake when it struck a rock and broke apart. He was able to pull himself onto dry land. For three days, Wellington trudged through the snow without food or dry clothes until he came upon a First Nations village. He eventually made his way back to New Westminster, nearly dead from exhaustion. You'll remember from the last episode that Wellington became one of the many who went looking for Slumok's gold and almost died in the pit. Wellington's close call added to the buzz around Slumok's gold. It was local, but it lured prospector after prospector over the next 15 years. Then, on October 18, 1915, a small newspaper in Wisconsin, the Stevens Point Daily Journal, published an article associating Slumok with gold. Quote, Wilbur Armstrong, a Washington prospector of 72, plunged into the mountains of the Pitt Range recently on his 10th trip in the search of Slumok's mine. For 10 years, Armstrong has made his pilgrimage every summer, but this, he says, will be the last if it proves as barren as the others. End quote. The article goes on to say that Armstrong wasn't the only man to attempt to locate the hidden treasure, whose location was thought to be within 20 miles of the head of Pitt Lake. But the mine has only been found by one man, Slumok, who is now dead. Quote, the Indian, after whom it was named, was hanged in the jail yard at New Westminster in 1891. End quote. Then it goes on to mention Walter Jackson, and names him as the second man to discover the lost mine, and that he, quote, panned out thousands of dollars worth of gold when he located it in 1901. Bearing the main part of his treasure, he came out with dust and nuggets to the value of $8,000, intending to return and stake claims at his leisure, end quote. The story then states that Jackson got sick, and since he was close to death, wrote to Andrew Hall, with an accompanying chart. Hall was in need of money while stationed in Yukon and sold the letter and chart to Wilbur Armstrong's cousin. And that's how Armstrong had the letter in his possession. News of Slumok's bonanza spread like wildfire and traveled as far as the east coast of the United States. 
The mighty Philadelphia Inquirer ran the story on November 7, 1915, giving the affair an air of legitimacy in the established press. To put this into perspective, the Inquirer was founded in 1829 and is the third oldest surviving daily newspaper in the United States. But were these stories legitimate? There's so much mystery surrounding them. Neither the province article from 1901 nor 1915 can be attributed to a particular reporter. This could be because it was rare at the time for the articles to be signed or have a byline. In fact, that word first appeared in print in 1926, in The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, and the practice didn't become popular until the end of the 19th century, as journalists became more powerful and popular. What stood out for us is that in the 1915 article, Andrew Hall is named, and we haven't found evidence of his existence in any of our research. There are two noteworthy things in those articles. One, they officially connect Slumok with gold. Two, the curse is nowhere to be found, even though they mention the misfortunes those seeking gold experienced. You and I both know the media portray us as people in a negative way, like, you know, the name was dragged through the mud. That's Rain Pierre, member of the Katsi First Nation and descendant of Slumok. On the TV series, Dead Man's Curse, Rain and I searched through old newspapers and court records in the BC archives for any bit of truth we could find when he shared his thoughts about how Slumok was portrayed in the press. Brian Antonson is the co-author of Slumok's Gold and the retired associate dean of the Broadcast and Media Communications Department at the BC Institute of Technology. For years, Brian taught journalism students about the role of ethics in media, and he says the official newspaper record can't be considered fair reporting. The Daily Columbian was responsible for accusing him of murder and of being insane right off the top. And that was fundamentally wrong. So when it came time for the court case, the jury pool, if you will, was quite contaminated. And so they had a 15-minute sequestering of the jury. After all of the evidence had been presented, after Slumac's defense did not call any witnesses, and, and, and we don't know why that, that didn't happen, but it was a travesty, uh, he, he was uh, convicted. The press relentlessly villainized and dehumanized Slumok. But why? Why were the newspapers so hell-bent on making him into a monster? For a deeper explanation, we're turning to someone else who has a deep connection to Slumok. So, I swear, me it's Kwa Good day, everybody, and welcome. My name is Len Pierre. My ancestral name is Polikuluk, and I am Coast Salish from Keatsy First Nation on my father's side and Musqueam First Nation on my mother's side. Len Pierre is also connected to Peter Pierre, and like all of us, he's been touched by the story from a young age. In the year 2019, probably, um, I received my traditional Indigenous name, uh, Polikuluk. And on the day I received my name, there were probably uh, 12 other peers from my family who were also receiving their name. And on that day, I stood beside my cousin, Rain Pierre, who now carries the traditional name uh, Slamuch, which is Slumok's uh, indigenous name. And so again, it's always been in the, not just my peripheral, it's just been an intimate 
icon in my life, I will say. So that's how I know and have have learned and grew, grew up with the story. One of Len's first experiences with negative portrayals of the First Nations people in the media happened when he was only a kid. One of the classic examples that I do have in, in the back of my mind is watching the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show. There's this one episode of Bugs Bunny where he is shooting and killing these Native American Indians in defense of this fort. He's singing the song. One little two, little three, little Indians. One little two, little three, little Indians. Four little five, little six, little Indians. And for every Indian he killed, he would tally it on a scoreboard next to where he was stationed. He would then go on to say, oh, never mind. That one was a half-breed, and then wipe away half of a mark. Uh, subliminal messaging that is anti-Indigenous in nature, right? And outright uh, promoting violence against Indigenous folks. But again, tied into that colonial narrative that we are enemies of humanity or enemies of the state. And Len says that's been the case with colonization across the world. It's how the colonial country could be formed, right? Canada would not exist with, you know, if early settlers and colonizers came into our lands and territories and said, you know what, we need to respect the human rights of the local indigenous folks. Canada would never have been born. The same for United States and Mexico and Australia, all of our colonial countries across the planet. So stereotypes regarding um, indigenous peoples um, really come from this idea that we are savage and heathen and, and inferior people. And what's really interesting about the context of Canada itself is that, you know, Canada has a relentless track record for socializing its citizens into being anti-Indigenous. So Indigenous peoples are savage, inferior, less deserving, less worthy people. So really, ultimately, that's the, the origin of the very first stereotypes surrounding Indigenous folks. So leading up to, you know, the late 1800s, um, this was the prime of anti-Indigenous socialization. So when we see it in politics, they taught it in the curriculum, in the public K-12 system. And of course, that's what we see, you know, when we think, when we see the word savage applied to Slumak in, in the media at the time. So that was like very common. That was quite the norm. This, this socialization that is anti-Indigenous in this country. So it seems that the story of Slumok's gold mine and the curse were part of a bigger narrative being told about Indigenous peoples in the press. And you can see that on August 8th, 1926, when the Sunday edition of the province newspaper out of Vancouver, by this point, one of the most widely read papers in town, published an article titled Indian Killer, Once Terror of Pitt Lake. The first article to mention Slumok in the 20th century takes a similar viewpoint from the local press 35 years earlier, in 1891, and labels him as a, quote, Indian desperado to a new generation of readers. The featured article spins a salacious tale of a cunning, bloodthirsty killer. Quote, any stragglers from the main village were murdered secretly by Slumok for no apparent reason beyond the fact that he liked to be monarch of all he surveyed. Caught in the act of killing an Indian, he had quite a hectic time making his escape as he was shot twice in the same place and had to do some fine work playing dead in his canoe and then diving and swimming underwater. He evidently had made a study of the ways of the animals he hunted 
and put his knowledge into practice. End quote. The article cites a source extremely close to Slumok's trial and execution, Jason Allard. Quote, Mr. Allard says he was a most charming personality with the manners of a French dancing master. When first captured, he behaved just as any other wild creature would do. He would neither eat, take his medicine, nor talk. With long hair, he had wonderfully large eyes, which reminded Mr. Allard of the eyes of the gray lynx. All through the days of his captivity, he continued to exhibit the same good manners, and when he was sentenced to be hanged, he gave every indication of being quite content with his sentence. He told Mr. Allard that the young man he had killed had tantalized him on every occasion, calling him horrible names, such as no one could put up with, end quote. You might remember that Allard was the translator for witnesses in Slumok's trial and translated documents for the court. The article goes on to say that, quote, after the murder of the half-breed Kanaka, Slumok took to the woods and was missing once more. His cabin was searched and all kinds of clothing found, including a convict's suit of clothes. Did he murder him or help him to escape? The chances are that he murdered him, and the lake scenery saw an outlaw hunting and killing an outlaw. So Slumok died, and the reign was over. The reign of countless tears shed by the relatives of those he had murdered. End quote. Slumok was only convicted for the murder of Louis B., yet newspapers reported that he was responsible for many more killings. But there was still no real legend, no curse. It would take 13 years and dozens of hapless prospectors before two articles were published in 1939 that cemented the legend and the curse for the decades to follow. Media frenzy over a supposedly dangerous man wasn't new, even in Slumok's time. A decade before Slumok died, newspapers from New York to San Francisco printed the wild tales of outlaw Billy the Kid, who was actually responsible for the murder of several men in the American West, and had escaped imprisonment at least once before finally being killed in a gunfight. The adventures, the drama, the lawlessness of Billy the Kid kept readers wrapped and sold papers. Why would, quote, wild Indian killer Slumok be any different, end quote. From around 1900 to the 1950s, cheaply printed special magazines and pictorials wanted to get in on the action and featured racy, action-based stories typically published using cheap, ragged-edged paper made from wood pulp. Brian Antonson says, this is what people mean when they talk about pulp fiction. I mean, it, it, it's cheap pulp paper that it was all printed on, but that came to represent uh, over many decades um, that, 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 that the concept that they just ground this stuff out. They just printed it out without any responsibility, without any necessity to have something accurate, uh, without uh, any necessity to adhere to the, the, the common precepts of, of journalism, fact-checking, et cetera, et cetera. So just grind it out. Uh, don't necessarily tell the truth because there's no reason to tell the truth. The public will just uh, uh, suck it up and love all of this stuff. And I think that's true. So it's a derisive term. It's a pretty negative term, and it fits in the Slumac case 
The first Slumox story that ventured into pulp fiction was printed in the province newspaper's Saturday Magazine on June 30, 1939. It included an interview with an elderly former prospector, stagecoach driver, steamboat operator, and who knows what else, named Hugh Murray. Murray was a fountain of tall tales, and he told reporter Jack Mahoney that, quote, Slumok was a tough character, and it was believed, but never proven, that he had drowned three of his Indian wives at the mouth of Pitt Lake to prevent them from divulging the location, which they had been unfortunate enough to learn of his fine, end quote. Almost 50 years after his execution, this was the very first time in the press reported that Slumuk had killed women. It wouldn't be the last. On November 25th, 1939, a writer named C.V. Tench published a lengthy piece in the Montreal Standard, a weekly pictorial newspaper titled Who Do Gold in British Columbia? You can already tell where this is going just from the title, and it's nowhere good. The word hoodoo has a couple of origin stories. One is that it's a corruption of the word voodoo, itself a corruption of the word vodun, a West African religion with elements that survived the transatlantic slave trade and Christianization. Vodun, or voodoo, appears in various cultures with a strong African influence throughout the American South, the Caribbean, and Latin America. Another origin story is that the word hoodoo comes from a similar word in the Awe language of West Africa, meaning spirit work. A spiritual tradition with both light and dark sides, voodoo, hoodoo, conjure, root work, was all considered witchcraft by plenty of Europeans. By the 1930s and 40s, the word hoodoo became popularized in North American media to arouse sensuality and fear. In music, something with hoodoo in the name was bewitching and scandalous. With gold, it meant cursed. In the Hoodoo Gold article, Tench claimed to have interviewed 83-year-old Hugh Murray, who was introduced to the readership as, among other things, an Indian fighter and scout. Quote, first indication of the existence of the Lost Creek Mine came some 40 years ago, when the Indian Slumok arrived in New Westminster with a knapsack bulging with gold nuggets, end quote. This time, Murray's tale got taller and ventured into legend. Tents wrote that, according to Murray, Slumok came into town three times. Each time, quote, starting on a drinking orgy, and boasting that he knew of a creek in the Pitt Meadows Mountains where he could pick up gold in handfuls in pieces as large as walnuts, end quote. Tench's article then accuses Slumuk of getting away with the mysterious drowning death of one indigenous woman, but finally being arrested for the killing of another whose body supposedly washed up on the shore of the Fraser River with, quote, a long-bladed hunting knife firmly embedded in the heart. At once, the police got busy. The upshot of their findings was that the knife was positively identified as Slumuk's, end quote. But wait, there's more. Quote, other evidence was unearthed, resulting in Slumuk being brought to trial, convicted, and sentenced to be hanged. He accepted the sentence with the stoic calm of his race. And 
During his brief imprisonment, he admitted to having murdered no less than eight indigenous women, not the words Tench used, who at various times had accompanied him on trips to Lost Creek Mine, end quote. Clearly, neither C.V. Tench nor Hugh Murray read any official court records. I know they didn't have microfiche or Google back then, but still, it seems like the reporting ventures on being a work of fiction. So what do we know about C.V. Tench? Here's Brian Anderson. So Tench was an Englishman. Uh, he moved to Canada, I believe the, the year was 1930. Uh, he was here in Vancouver. And this was his base of operations. And he, he, he was a writer. He was a creative guy. He wrote all sorts of science fiction, pulp fiction type stuff. Uh, apparently in the 60s, he wrote some material for uh, Twilight Zone. So he had quite a, a varied career, but he had this opportunity to come up with the stuff that he invented. So nobody questioned that. So in the ethos of the day, if you will, he just went ahead and wrote whatever came out of his, uh, his, his fingers. Uh, onto a typewriter, no, no doubt, and uh, wrote it and made money off it. C.V. Tench's articles in the 1930s and 40s were full of misinformation. One of his major mistakes was stating that Slumuk was hanged in 1903, when it was actually 1891. And that wasn't all. His version of the story got further from the truth as the years went by. And it wasn't until the 50s that he actually introduced the concept of a curse or of uh, women uh, disappearing. At one point in time, he suggested that two white women and six uh, indigenous women had been murdered. And then he upped that, to, so that would be a total of eight. He then upped it to nine. And so by his 1956 article, uh, he said that uh, this is why Slumac was hanged for the murder of these women. Um, and uh, he talked about uh, the curse. He, he'd earlier called it a hoodoo uh, mine. And you can say, well, hoodoo is sort of ghostly, cursy, maybe. But the, the word curse didn't come in to Tench's work until I think 1951. Brian says that Tench, in the end, outright omitted the facts in Slumak's story. He does not mention anywhere Louis B. Louis B. and his murder is why Slumak was hanged. And all of this stuff was, it, 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 you know, as a reporter, he would have to do a little bit of research. He'd have to go back and find the actual date. He'd have to go back and find the records of the Colombian newspaper and find what uh, information was available as to the accuracy of all that and find that Slumac was hanged for Louis B.'s murder. He did not do the job that he should have been doing as a responsible reporter. He made it up out of whole cloth. And I consider Tench to be largely responsible for the whole creation of this modern, uh, modern story, modern tale of Slumac uh, killing women, uh, a body being brought up out of the, the fishermen's nets in the, the river off uh, New Westminster and so on. He created that whole side of it. So over to the one side, you have the, the legendary gold that Slumac supposedly had, which is interesting in itself. On the other side, you have the lurid uh, pulp fiction story of Slumac killing women to protect the secret of his lost mind. And on and on it goes. 
Unfortunately, C.V. Tench repeatedly published articles that veered further and further from the facts, and other publications throughout the 1940s and 50s picked up where he left off, rehashing the same false narrative. This pulp fiction version of Slumok's story became the prevailing one, and Brian Addison says it sucked people in, sometimes to their deaths. So the people who were responsive to the concept of gold, easy gold, you, know, you don't even have to dig it out of a vein. All you have to do is put your fingers into a creek and you'll come up with a handful of gold nuggets. Uh, the people who respond to that without any kind of uh, analytical thinking, uh, whatever, they're legion in numbers. And so they read an article that says, all this stuff is up there. It's somewhere near Pit Lake. Pit Lake is huge. And the mountains around Pit Lake, where this may have come from, uh, they're very dangerous, but they're also very tall, uh, 7,000 feet in some cases. So the area is huge. Doesn't matter. I'm going out camping this weekend, and I'm going to find that gold because I got a gut feeling that tells me where it is. So that's the kind of person uh, who's going to do that. Some people are responsible prospectors and uh, many people are responsible prospectors. And they're going to say, I am going to follow the trail where it leads. I'm going to follow the evidence that we have. I'm going to look for the descriptions that that uh, we have in the Jackson letter, the three peaks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let's go see if we can find that sort of thing. Others with no preparation whatsoever, put a pack on their back and some old boots on their feet and off they go into the bush. And I got to think that those are the people who don't come back. Pulp Fiction turned Slumok into an evil madman and promoted the idea that getting his gold was as easy as hiking into the mountains north of Pitt Lake, which led to the deaths of many ill-prepared prospectors. But what is the origin of Nika Memlus, my Memlus, the curse attributed to Slumok. That didn't appear until December 21st, 1951, when the province published an article cementing the curse into the collective imagination of gold seekers and drama lovers around the world. Reporter Bruce Larson interviewed 79-year-old Chief August Jack Cazzolano for the story. Chief Cazzolano was born in 1877 in the village of Kwaikwe, in what is now Vancouver's famous Stanley Park. He would have been 13 years old when Slumak was hanged 20 kilometers away in New Westminster. As chief of the Squamish Nation, Chief Consolano gave scores of engaging, powerful interviews from the 1930s through the 60s, providing a rich, deep oral history that is available to the public online. In researching this podcast, our team found a transcription of Larson's article, but there was a problem. The section that supposedly references the curse didn't have the full curse. Suspicious? Let me explain. The sections before and after the curse were complete full sentences and paragraphs. The lines with the curse were jumbled and missing words. Quote, Old Slumak highlights the legend, Memlus mine Memlus. Mine dies also, and in parentheses, no. When I die, mine dies, end quote. If you want to see it for yourself, we'll link it in the show notes. Regardless, the words don't make sense, but it's a little unsavory to know 
that of all the hundreds of articles and documents that our team has poured over, both for this podcast and the TV series, this is the only one with a messed up transcription and right where the curse is supposed to be? We were determined to get to the bottom of it, so our team went to the Vancouver Public Library, where issues of the province, the Daily Columbian, and other publications are stored on microfilm. Scrolling past articles on Cold War skirmishes with Soviets, the Canucks three-game losing streak, and advertisements for the annual Christmas sale at Woodward's, we found the original article. At the microfilm machine, we zoomed in on the section that had the garbled text on the PDF. On the scanned image of the original newspaper article, the folded crease cut right across what looked like the curse. The first two words were unreadable. The print seemed to have been rubbed off the page. All you could make out was Memlus, mein Memlus. We don't know the exact words Chief Consolano used, or why he supposedly told Larson that Slumuk said these words on the gallows. Words that are in Chinook and not easily translatable to English. Maybe it was an attempt at throwing hapless prospectors even further off track, especially as this article was published a year after Alpha Gaspard's tragic death. But maybe there's some truth to the curse, as seen in the missing jumbled words in the transcription and the original copy of the article. We know that the legend of Slumok's lost mine was forever changed when a curse was added to the story. Brian Antonson says the curse, the legend, and the tales were repeated as truth in newspapers, books, documentaries, and TV shows as recently as the late 1990s, more than 100 years after Slumok's execution. A lot of people in their journalism if, or in their journalistic uh, exploits, if you will, simply repeat what has been uh, reported in earlier things, in earlier books, uh, in earlier magazine articles or whatever, uh, without trying to follow through on threads and, 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 uh, and correct things. To put it more personally, we published our slim 56-page uh, volume in 1972. We found out an awful lot more information uh, with an awful lot more research and our 160 page uh, follow up in 2007 corrected a lot of those errors. Now we're working on another one that will be published in the next uh, couple of years. And we're finding all sorts of things that we know today that we did not know in 1972. And we're trying to correct that. Well, a lot of publications have not bothered to correct that. One would think that, that a responsible reporter would dig back into earlier editions of uh, the media of the day, the newspaper of the day, and, uh, and find out whether that was true or not. Aside from that, uh, as journalism has hopefully approved over the last many decades, uh, hopefully people approach the story with more responsibility. And that's what we're doing here, going deeper, investigating, sorting fact from fiction, getting closer to the truth to give Slumuck a voice from beyond the veil. Len Pierre dedicates his career to truth-telling, to healing the past and cultivating a better future. He specializes in educating and training the corporate sector with a focus on reconciliation, indigenous cultural safety, and decolonization work. 
he sees this as an opportunity to set the record straight. We have stories in the 2000s of, of injustice uh, applied to Indigenous peoples today. My only thing is, is you know, I, how do we take those stories, uh, like Slumog's story, and, you know, probably thousands of other cases like it of injustice, um, and, and, you know, share them with, with society today, because often it's just missing information from today's context. I don't do this work because I have a hundred stories of abuse and torture and genocide, right? I do this work because I have a hundred stories of survival, of thrival, of resistance, of resurgence and reclamation. That's, that's what, you know, gives me my juice to be able to do this work. And ultimately, you know, I really do have this faith in humanity too, I really do, that, you know, we we don't roll out of bed to, you know, cause hurt or pain to anyone. Um, not the vast majority of the population, right? But most, most of us really want what everybody wants, and that is to be seen, to be heard, and to be validated. Now that we know that most of what has been printed about Slumok was not the real story, we still have to ask, is the curse real? Well, I was there. I felt it. And Don agrees. Well, the, the curse is, is real, but the curse is, all, uh, is also something that can be worked with. And um, the curse is actually, to know that there's a curse is actually an advantage. That's next time on the final episode of this season of Dead Man's Curse. Slumox Gold. Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Rosalind Kofor. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold Mershon and Gail Starr. Our Indigenous Cultural and Heritage Consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific media production. 